0: This is Verso, a behind-the-scenes podcast about programs and other activities at the Barnes Foundation. Each podcast explores the rich history of the Foundation and the creative minds of the artists, thinkers, and performers who bring the Foundation's campus to life.
1: This is the podcast Verso, a new series at the Barnes Foundation. My name is Catherine Scovira, and I am co-artistic director of the Barnes Ensemble a new orchestra that's launching this fall at the Barnes Foundation. I'm sitting here with co-artistic director and music director Robert Whalen, and uh, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Of course. Happy to talk about this.
1: Now, it feels a little bit self-serving to be having this conversation with you, because as you know, we are co-artistic directors together. Mm -hmm. We're a husband and wife team, and the Philadelphia Inquirer in January 2017 announced this when we announced the music Mm -hmm. uh, that was coming to the barn. So for our listeners, could you tell me, why are we doing this?
0: Well, I think you're right. It's for both of us. We know a lot about the project and we work together, and it's a, a passion For our you know profession uh so the it may seem at first a little uh strange to be talking about it together but that said who knows the project better than you and me and who knows what questions to ask better about it than you and me so uh i feel like this conversation is really exciting because we can not just talk about what's happening but talk about why it's happening
1: so tell, tell our listeners a little bit more about why this is happening, about some of the history that we've learned about in previous podcasts of music at the Barnes, and how Dr. Albert Barnes saw these intersections and the importance of music.
0: Music has a very long history at the Barnes Foundation. It's one of the great untold stories of the Foundation. Albert Barnes had a very early exposure to music. He played Fife when he was <laughs> 11, if, and if you're a follower of this podcast series, you have heard Barbara Bokar say that on the very first podcast we did. And uh, he had an early exposure to music, and Barbara also told us that it was his greatest love, even beyond the visual arts. He had a real affinity for music. He had uh, concerts at his home, both featuring choral groups and uh, solo and accompanied performers, and uh, was a seasoned subscriber and a very active patron of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Uh, And he was also Leopold Stokowski's neighbor, uh, next-door neighbor, and they had many conversations. Stokowski was hosted by Barnes on numerous occasions at concerts. In fact, Barnes threw a concert specifically for Stokowski. It was only the the two of them and their, their significant others. And... So that's kind of the personal history in terms of Barnes's interaction with music. But what, what one thing that was so wonderful to discover in the archives also was some of the letters that Dr. Barnes wrote um, to Stokowski, where after doing a concert of contemporary music and received pretty um, difficult or not necessarily positive critical feedback, uh, Barnes said, no, you have to keep doing this and you have to go even further than what you're doing. And Which is saying quite a lot because Leopold Stokowski was at the cutting edge of what orchestras were doing in America at that time. He was really pushing the envelope. And,
1: and t- behind him, Dr. Barnes was really pushing him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he was pushing the person, pushing the envelope.
1: Mm-hmm. And they pushed each other. They had a really interesting relationship. Um, Dr. Barnes was very... Avid uh, in his support of living composers and uh, musicians. He had a a Ruggieri violin that he purchased just so that he could have concerts in his home and a Steinway piano.
0: One thing that I know we've discussed on here before is that Barnes gave out more musical scholarships than he did in the visual arts. And that's that's something to be said uh, in terms of his support of not only music and performance, but music education. And... Barnes also saw, and this is also from the archives, he saw the concerts that were given and the musical work that was being done at the foundation at the time as as important to the mission of the institution as everything else that was happening. And that is not to be uh, taken lightly.
1: Not at all. In a way, uh, the Barnes Ensemble launching this fall is a, a real coming home both in the space and just um, to the mission of the barns as a whole um, tell our listeners a little bit about how we first came to the Barnes hmm. in October 2015 and we tested the acoustic like we do in any space that we enter mm-hmm.
0: well you know I, I suspect that our experience visiting the Barnes is like many people's experiences visiting the Barnes. I think this is probably what happens to pretty much everybody when they walk into this space. You, uh, you come in, uh, and I'm going to speak about the collection first, the experience of the collection. You walk in, and it's like this, this lightning bolt um, that hit us. Uh, because here are two people who have spent their lives immersed in musical art and seeing the relationships between different works and programming and so forth, and you walk into this space and it is the visual living embodiment of these years and years of work and
1: study, study, and, study and research. So forth. Yeah. It,
0: it just was like, man, this is it. It just made so much sense. It seems so logical. And, um, and we felt it had a, a great deal to say about how people can present concerts and how we can... Speak about the contemporary art of our time because that's what Barnes was doing. the the His uh, he was collecting the contemporary art of his time, and he collected it and arranged it in such a way as to educate people about it, to teach them about it, to help it be understood. Because, believe it or not, um, the works of Renoir and Monet and uh, Picasso were not readily accepted at that time and as Martha Lucy has famously said, there was no MoMA there, so there was no uh, there, were, there was no support for the contemporary arts in the way that there is now. So,
1: And even in Barnes's own experience um, when he first received the initial shipment of paintings from William Glackens from Paris he didn't understand what he was getting into he looked at something like the Van Gogh Postman and said what is this? How am I supposed to understand this? And and what I think we find so inspiring is that he really sought out the education so that he could better understand this new world he was getting into.
0: I think that's one of the most inspiring stories about Albert Barnes is that Glackens bought, brought back what we now consider to be some of the great masterworks
1: in the collection. In the collection. And as a whole. Yeah,
0: yeah you know, in, in the world, right? And Uh, and Barnes didn't it didn't hit him immediately so he took how many months I think it was six months to educate himself on the the visual art and to learn about the trends that were happening and, to, and af- after six months he really got into it and he was really excited he wasn't only appreciative but he was invested
1: and then he went there himself
0: and then he went there himself there was a
1: scene of him <clears throat> chasing uh, Gertrude Stein around a table I believe if I'm not mistaken he was very involved in so- the salons and <laughs> causing a whole lot of trouble in Paris and chasing down every gallery owner he could
0: absolutely and Barnes saw these works as helping, as essential in teaching people how to think critically, and to be better participants in, and more active participants in a democratic society, and what I think was, and this is just my read on it, but I think there's there's something to back this up, uh, that what was so different about what the Impressionists were, what we call the Impressionists were doing, was that it was taking representative art, f- you know, that the idea that you were supposed to paint something and make it look exactly the way it looks and to hide the technique of doing so. And he was saying, no, let's, uh, what the impressions were doing was let's call attention to the action and the experience of painting. We're putting the, the, the painting itself, the act of painting itself, more to the foreground than it ever had been.
1: So there's a direct corollary here then with what's happening with the Barnes Ensemble. Um, The dates are September 30th through October 8th, and during this time we will be presenting open rehearsals, school visits out to Philadelphia regional schools, master classes with living composers, and multiple concerts. But in addition to that, there's going to be some rehearsals that will be public and free. So um, in terms of inviting people to see maybe what goes into this discipline, seeing the brushstrokes, understanding that there's an educational goal behind this, not only with our concert programming, but also with our event planning. Uh, Could you speak to that?
0: Absolutely. I would say the entirety of the thrust of the Barnes... um, ensemble is educational and I had the privilege of talking with the uh, just recently former music director of the New York Philharmonic Alan Gilbert and he said that uh, he thinks of programming a subscription concert exactly the same as he thinks about programming an educational program because what we're what we're all doing is cultural enrichment we're either reapproaching works that we have seen and heard before and trying to, uh, to add our maturity to that experience and see what else we have to learn from it. Or we're seeing something for the first time and coming to know it and building a relationship in that way. Either way, it's both learning, it's both education and it can be enjoyable and you know, it can be perceived as entertainment, but regardless, it, it is an enrichment of the, the self when you go to these cultural events. Um, so we we see everything that we do with the Barnes Ensemble as educational, and we're we're extremely excited about our school projects that we're doing. Um, we're partnering with at least eight area schools uh, who will be who we will be visiting, and then who will be visiting us, uh, and will be attending this open rehearsal. And we're be working with over at least 800 students during the course of these 9 days. So that's very exciting. And it's extremely exciting to us to be um, to be introducing them to contemporary repertoire, to pieces that people say, "Oh no, that's very challenging. We shouldn't go there." This is this is this is so important to us because we believe everybody can interact with these pieces and that you know, if a 12-year-old is coming to hear Ligeti for the first time, I think that that 12-year-old has something very important to bring to to this. It's not easy being that age. It's not easy being any age. And um, I think what the great works of the past and the present is that they have something to say to all of us.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about the Ligeti ramifications specifically, because... We're seeing it as a social justice piece and a way of creating conversation between disparate groups, which is very timely and, and an emotional moment, I think for everyone. What can you say about this piece as the musicians struggle to see eye to eye and to come together and as they as they clash and disagree and misunderstand and <laughs> and ultimately hopefully resolve mm-hmm
0: well, you more or less said it all right there. Right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, Ligeti wrote this piece in 1968, which was another very difficult year for America, um, with the death of Martin Luther King. And one has to ask: we ha- we have to know that we have, you know, as Martin Luther King himself said, "the Ark of Je- uh, the Ark of." history tends towards justice mm-hmm. the, um, but it's a long arc and uh, these are very very difficult times that we're going through and this is a very timely piece I think um, and what's so significant about the Ligeti is that you have you have two groups of, within the orchestra that are functioning as, indiv- as separate orchestras in the, within the context of the larger group and one is tuned a quarter step higher than the other. That said, within those groups, between the groups, there are rhythmical groups that line up between the, between the two orchestras or sub-orchestras.
1: There are people between the orchestras that are trying to come together.
0: Well, who are playing exactly the same rhythm. Mm-hmm. And what happens uh, is that they go through this unfolding of of awareness and coming together, and what what happens is is that unfortunately there's always this tonal separation between the two. So no matter how much they try to unify rhythmically, um, uh, and so forth, it it doesn't coalesce until the very 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 end, and. It's this amazing working out of this process. So it begins with this feeling things out and learning and growing. And then there's this real effort to unify and then it fatigues. And it it, it sort of fades away. And then it builds up again in the same momentum and it rhythmically unifies again. And then it fails again and it peters out. And as it peters out, it has this outburst of total rage and just frustration. And then at at the very end... There's an understanding, there's an acceptance, and there's an awareness that is developed between the instruments and the players that that didn't exist. And what's what's so beautiful is this independence now, and independence and coexistence. And uh, it's a remarkable experience.
1: And so this is the piece that we will be using to um, to bring to the students the 400 students coming to the open rehearsal on October 4th Mm -hmm. and talking with them and and bringing them into different groups so that they can experience this themselves with the musicians working through it in rehearsal with you.
0: Yes. Yes, exactly. And it will also be the closing piece on our final concert on October 8th. Um, And we are so excited to be hosting the internationally renowned Jack Quartet as our mentor leaders within the ensemble uh, one thing that is very important to the philosophy of this project is that chamber music is at the core of everything uh, we believe that with chamber music people play differently and they listen differently, they, they listen like colleagues and they perform like leaders
1: and in doing so we invite the audience to, to listen Deeply, And to develop that, just like the art of looking that the Barnes Foundation champions, this is what um, not only this core of the ensemble with the Jack Quartet, but also the ensemble as a whole is doing.
0: Absolutely. And we're activating, You know, we're seeing the ensemble as the sum of all of its parts, meaning the individuals they're in, the, the existing chamber groups they're in, new chamber groups that are forming when they're here, and the full group together. Um, And we hope very much that the large ensemble experience is just big chamber music. It's just this body of people that becomes this living organism that is reacting to different parts of itself and is aware in every single direction. And we feel very strongly, I would say, that the The advocacy for the individual and the advocacy for their listening and their participation as chamber musicians is essential to making that happen.
1: So to talk a little bit more about our chamber musicians, let me say that um, the Jack Quartet has been described by the Washington Post as the go-to quartet for contemporary music, tying impeccable musicianship to intellectual ferocity and a take-no-prisoner's sense of commitment. How do you think Dr. Barnes would feel about that? I
0: think that's right up his alley.
1: Right. They are um, deeply dedicated to to creating and spreading string quartet music that's been written by living composers. Um, And they've been called by the Boston Globe the superheroes of the new music world so who are the young music professional superheroes that they will be mentoring hmm.
0: well we have people about 20 people from all across the globe who are going to be working with us and the the chamber ensembles that uh, that have were accepted as fellows here are the Argus Quartet uh, who are currently based in New York and will be the quartet in residence at the Juilliard School next year uh, the Ligeti Quartet from London and the Uh, Chartreuse, excuse me, Ensemble Chartreuse, which is a trio of performers who live in on the East Coast, the West Coast, and the Third Coast of Chicago.
1: They are truly the tri-coastal trio. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And fellows like, as Robert said, that are being drawn from across the world.
0: Yeah, and in addition to the the chamber quartets and trios that are part of this, there are also nine individuals Mm -hmm. who are who are coming from all across the globe and all across the United States to be a part of this.
1: In addition to that, tell us a little bit more about the living composers that we're inviting, um, not only not only for this um, premiere of the Barnes Ensemble, but just as a whole. I want to to look forward to to the next season. But tell us a little (laughs) bit more about Kaiyad Eric.
0: Mm, mm -hmm. We are we are very blessed to have two standout composers leaders and. Uh, art advocates joining us at this first outing of the uh, the barnes ensemble are, are composer mentors who will be on site and the, whose works we will be performing as part of this festival uh, are um, distinguished professor kaya chernowin of harvard university as well as eric Webbles, who is one of the founders of the wet ink ensemble in new york and a uh, major advocate for contemporary repertoire in that city
1: now, looking forward to 2018, we should talk about a wonderful, wonderful invitation uh, to Stephen Schick.
0: Yeah. Well, Stephen Schick is one of the great leaders in contemporary musical art. He's uh, one of the most eloquent speakers. He is an unbelievable percussionist. If you have never seen this man perform, go online and look up his YouTube video of him playing Xenakis's Safa and hold on to your hats. He's he's
1: been truly such an inspiration to Robert and to me, and it's going to be absolutely incredible to work with him.
0: What's amazing about uh, Steve, uh, in terms of how he plays—that's what's just taught—in terms of how he plays percussion uh, is uh, every sound, every gesture is beautifully conceived, uh, and he he performs some of the most complex music ever written from memory. It becomes a physical. Uh, this deeply visceral experience. So you're not thinking about, oh my gosh, does wrote this as like a graph, you know, <laughs> like not, he doesn't even use regular musical notation. It's this incredible musical dance that he's doing. You don't think about the complexity of it. And you, and in, then you don't, it doesn't seem hard, even though it's unbelievably difficult. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things we can offer. And that's one of the essential components of what we're doing with the structure of the Barnes ensemble is that we are coming together over a length of time that gives us a lot of rehearsal so we can become very comfortable with performing the challenging repertoire that we're going to play. So when we play it, it feels free.
1: Now, to our listeners, this is a conductor percussionist talking about another conductor percussionist. So we should talk about how (laughs) percussionists think about sound because it's not like opening your mouth and singing or striking a key or drawing a bow across a string though certainly percussionists use bows Mm -hmm. Um, yeah we do these are these are sometimes isolated sounds that really one needs to get to the heart of because you have one opportunity to clash that (laughs) symbol
0: for example (laughs) well um we a couple thoughts about being a percussionist conductor um one is that the rep the solo repertory for our instrument didn't really exist until well into the 20th century so what w- the, the approach that we take is that our repertoire is right now and as, percussionists. as percussionists and we're developing it we can be part of the process of it um Just like Joachim was, you know, working with Brahms, with the Brahms Violin Concerto or whatever. He was, these are people who helped art come into being, right? Um, So our perspective as a percussionist is that we're looking at the the current point in history and working our way back, more or less. Whereas I think some people who have a longer, you know, if you're a violinist, your repertory extends very far back in, you know, some several hundreds of years, right? So you're able to sort of start from a long time ago and work your way into the present. Um, and a lot of those works have stood the test of time and so forth. So it's a different experience, right? Um, but as a percussionist conductor also, um, two things. Uh, you, sometimes you're right. If you're playing in an orchestra, you don't have very, as many notes, as other people use. So that cymbal clash at the end of the piece has to be exactly the right sound at exactly the right moment, and it has to sort of capture the spirit of the entire orchestral energy that (laughs) leads into it, right?
1: That sounds like a conductor.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, and you you spend a lot of your time listening, which is really important, I think. Um, And then that said, um, when you're playing more as a soloist, you get a lot more notes, which is great. Um... And that forces you to think differently, certainly as a soloist. But one of the, the issues of the sound production itself is um, the immediacy of it. And this is, I'm going to quote Steve Schick now by saying is that um, "Anyone can drop a stick, but not anyone can lift it." And
1: There's a direct corollary to the voice, of course, mm-hmm. um, which is that the inhale that you take prior to a phrase is really what's determining what you're able to do with that exhale. The exhale, of course, being the singing.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and the idea—I mean, this is absolutely true with voice and with, I would say, any performer—is that the all of the information that goes into making that sound in that moment happens beforehand. Right? the 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 action of the sound is the moment of release, but the preparation is what leads up up to it. Um, and, you know, there's certainly that direct correlation between the conducting gesture and the percussive gesture when you're using sticks.
1: I mean, frankly, this sounds like we need to do another podcast entirely on this topic. It's, it's I mean, of course, I find it fascinating. Um, yeah,
0: we, we always go, like, really deep in these podcasts. We always fun. go,
1: like, really deep. <laughs> well, we, we should we should just say that, that Steve Schick will be joining us from March... 5 through 9 and June 11 through 16 in 2018
0: yeah and he's going to be doing some absolutely insane repertoire mm-hmm. and uh, which includes um, the Boulez-Marteau sans Metre, which Stravinsky himself called the great masterpiece of the 20th century um, the Grise noir de toile for six percussionists which is stunning and just wait until you see it mm-hmm. and and then in June, we'll be cycling, uh, circling around the performance of Grisey's uh, Quatre Chants pour Franchis de Suits, uh, the four songs for Crossing the Threshold, pardon my terrible French, and uh, featuring none other than Catherine Scavira as the voice on that uh, work for a Solo Vocalist and Fifteen Instruments.
1: And we're very fortunate that Steve Schick will be conducting that with us. yes. And that will really be launching the first year of the Barnes Ensemble, so we really couldn't be more thankful.
0: Yes. yeah, We uh, we are so thrilled about this October festival. We have an immense amount of energy from the fellows and from their collaborators and from the composers. It's It's going to blow your mind. And we're already at capacity for our open rehearsals, so I just know it's going to be a fantastic week.
1: So you can check out all the dates and the classes and rehearsals and the final concert on October 8th at our website, which is at www.barnesfoundation.org slash barnes ensemble.
0: Easy to remember. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's been wonderful talking with you about this, Robert, and thank you for listening, everyone. And we look forward to inviting you to the Barnes Foundation for the premiere of the Barnes Ensemble this fall. Yes,
0: hope to see you here on October 8th. If you would like to learn more about upcoming programs at the Barnes Foundation, please visit our website www.barnesfoundation.org programs. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The music used in this podcast is by Long Zijun. Thank you for listening in with us, and
1: we look forward to seeing you at the Barnes Foundation soon.